Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on what is for many people a holiday Monday. Lots coming up on the program today. We are going to talk more about graffiti and how the city of Nanaimo has taken a different approach when it comes to not only getting graffiti cleaned up, but making sure those behind the vandalism are paying for what they've done. Could it work in other cities? So we're going to ask that question as well. Also, another weekend of consistent delays for people calling 911 requiring an ambulance. We are going to check in with the Ambulance Paramedics Union a bit later on in the show to talk a bit more about what happened this past weekend. Right now, though, we're joined by Dr. Anna Wallach, family physician and assistant professor at UBC. Dr. Wallach, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We wanted to talk to you because there has been more talk about accessibility when it comes to people getting a vaccination, specifically a COVID-19 vaccination, and a lot of people questioning why it's not possible to get one of those if you are visiting your doctor, if you have an appointment with your, your family doctor. What are your thoughts on this, and, and do we need to make these shots available in doctors' offices? I think now that we are down to the last 10-15% who need to get vaccinated, absolutely, we now need to be able to open this up to family doctor's offices. I understand why in the beginning they couldn't do it. It would have been a logistical nightmare trying to, between having the storage um, problems and making sure that that the app was up to date and the provincial database was up to date and doctors being able to input information to that for thousands and thousands of people, it would have been a bit of a complicated um, situation. But now that it's, it's slower and the mass clinics have shut down, now is the time to take it to the doctor's offices so that when we have those conversations with the patients, it's really easy for us to say, okay, this is why we think you should get the vaccine. And if the patient agrees, then we can say, cool, I'm just going to go duck out into the vaccine fridge and be with you in a couple of minutes and we can get you on your way. And do you think that would would make a difference? Because there's that gap, isn't there, that even if a doctor has that conversation with somebody, if it doesn't happen right there, it's easy to come up with a million reasons after you leave that office as to why you weren't able to book the appointment or go to another place and get that shot. Exactly. For a lot of people, life can get in the way. You have to go back home. You have to um, open up your computer, find a find a center that has it, and then find an appointment date that suits you. And so many things could, could happen along the way, or you could get sucked down um, a social media rabbit hole and end up reading something that will question everything that you spoke to your doctor about. So it would be so much easier and so much more convenient if, as you have the questions and they come to you and it's right there and you can get it done and You don't need to think of any further steps. It also would help for people who have anxiety over needles, who, you know, you need to be there with a trusted person in a smaller space, a private space. And, you know, as a family physician, I'm able to to offer that for, for people for whom there's another level of anxiety that we aren't able to address in a larger crowded facility. Do do you think enough attention has been paid to that? Because I would even, my own experience, and I wasn't in the the mass clinic, say at the convention center, I was at uh, the Sunset Community Center, so it was still a big room. And I would put myself somewhere on the mid-range when it comes to needle anxiety. I I, I would never get a needle unless I absolutely had to, uh, which is why I got these ones. But it was was kind of intimidating walking into that room, seeing uh, containers of needles on every table, having to look away because I'm one of those 
those people that gets quite nauseous if I see someone getting a shot and it raises my anxiety. Do you think we've paid enough attention to the fact that there are going to be people and there will still be people who, who that environment is really frightening? I know the mass clinics did try and there were sections if you you had to know though to be able to ask for a private space and not all the places had it as well. So I think yes now that it's we need to get that conversation going and get that get that out there that if you are having having concerns about anxiety and I hear you I went and got mine um for all the healthcare staff and got it in the hospital and even I was feeling a bit queasy about it. And you know, I do this all the time. And again, this was something that I knew I needed to do. So it is something that we do need to pay attention to and we need to recognize. And especially now that kids are getting, are, are hopefully going to get vaccinated soon, that adds an entirely different layer to things. And it would be so much more gentler for kids if they could come to the doctor's office, the doctor they've known all their lives, and be there with their parents, for example, and get the shot in a, in a more comfortable environment. And are you seeing as well the numbers going back up in that a lot of people, we went to telehealth appointments for people that were still seeing family doctors or had to see a family doctor. Uh, there were, we, for a while there, I think all but very urgent uh, cases were, were done on Zoom or were done on screens rather than in person. Has that changed in that are you seeing people are comfortable and coming in person back to doctor's offices? From what I know, and majority of my colleagues and myself, we do see patients in person, um, and we always have throughout the pandemic. People are able to do book appointments. There are still people who aren't comfortable with it, and we do give them the opportunity to, to do it by Zoom or by telehealth. But by and large, more and more people are, are getting out there and starting to get more comfortable with the idea. And do you think there are scenarios as well where for somebody that hasn't gotten the shot, the vaccination, it's not that they are a conspiracy theorist or that they are opposed to vaccines, but they have questions about this one and they just want to get more answers, things things clarified. We see headlines in newspapers, the latest one being in some places that have stopped using Moderna, which could cause anxiety for people as well. Is it a scenario where people just have questions and want to have that conversation with someone they trust? before they make that step to get the vaccination? Absolutely. Every day I'm having conversations still with people who have questions. And you're right, the conspiracy theorists, the tinfoil hat people out there, they're very, very, very few and far between. But a lot of people have questions. And as family doctors, we're the ones who are best able to to answer those questions. Um, I am hoping that with your family doctor, you have a relationship where you trust your doctor and we're all well informed about it and we're all hoping to be able and we're all ready and willing to be able to answer your questions if you have any concerns. There are a lot of people as well, though, that don't have family doctors. So w- would you like to see that then also making the vaccination available, say, in walk-in clinics or I think pharmacists only did AstraZeneca and aren't doing the other vaccines, but maybe in a pharmacy situation as well? Absolutely. It's we need The, the biggest thing is that We've stalled a bit with our our vaccination. We were fantastically going up and up and up and watching the numbers was, I was actually quite giddy watching how high our our vaccination numbers rose. And now we've kind of plateaued. And a lot of it will stem with the fact that we need those conversations with people in healthcare who we trust, be it the family doctor, be it the walk-in clinic, be it your community pharmacist. So we all play a role and we all need to be able to to use that role in in getting getting the numbers back up so we can 
finally get through this. So what's standing in the way? Would it be a public health order that has to change? Or what is stopping at this point family doctors who want to be able to give these shots from giving them? I think the Ministry of Public Health will need to be able to to give us the vaccines. Um, we are currently, like, you know, we're about to launch the flu shot campaign. And I know public health has reached out to a lot of family doctor's offices. We're in the middle of coordinating getting our shots, um, our, our flu shots to be able to give out to to patients. And, you know, I think the for the COVID-19 vaccines to be able to to be wrapped into that program needs to come from the ministry and from public health. Right. But, but so and it, would it be something then now that we've kind of dealt with storage issues and it doesn't need the, the super cold refrigeration and that, do you think it would be as easy then as something like the flu shot campaign? I think it could be. And, you know, especially since NACI has come out and has said, you know, you can get the COVID vaccine at the same time as any other vaccine that you get. So, you know, flu shot in one arm, COVID vaccine in the other arm. All right. That might that that takes us to a whole other needle phobia of getting more than one shot at the same time. But that'll be a, another conversation. But it is good to know that NASI has come out and they're, they're saying that it is safe to do that because I know people were questioning or had questions about that as well. Dr. Wolak, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time so much. Thank you for having me. Well, we've talked about this on the program. Many parts of Metro Vancouver, Vancouver Island, parts uh, cities in BC have seen an increase in graffiti and it is showing up on public property. It is costing thousands of dollars to have it removed, to have it dealt with. And in many cases, just to have the graffiti come back in a matter of days. Glad that the city went after him. He certainly wasn't very popular uh, amongst our citizens for doing what he did. 20-year-old Kai Cleave was facing two counts of mischief for defacing public and private property. But when the criminal charges were dropped, Nanaimo decided to sue the tagger. The civil action resulted in an order requiring Cleave to pay $10,000 in fines and more than $5,000 in damages to the city. All right, so that is part of a story from Global News on what happened in Nanaimo. And joining us now to talk more about this is the mayor of Nanaimo, Leonard Krogh. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. How bad was it, this one particular tagger leaving his mark through the city of Nanaimo? Well, uh, let me start from a place of sympathy. I was young and we all did stupid things. And if he'd done it a few times and stopped, it would be perhaps understandable. There are no less, we believe, than 450 separate taggings in the city. Hmm, that's, and, and all the same kind of signature, so you yeah. knew it was the same person? Ab- absolutely, chaos. Uh, and the city had no choice in the circumstances with the Crown dropping the charges, and I don't fault them. Perhaps they didn't have enough to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the criminal standard. But as some of your listeners may know, when you uh, sue somebody civilly in British Columbia, as cities are entitled to do, you only have to prove your case uh, uh, on the balance of probabilities. In other words, it's more probable that it occurred than it's probable that it didn't occur, essentially. And we were able to do that. And uh, I suppose to the young man's credit, he, uh, he did concede and consent to the order being granted that the court did make. 
And, and just to back up a little bit too, and you're right that kind of they, they have to go in knowing or believing they're going to win to go follow through with criminal charges. But that still must have been frustrating to see that there had been charges laid in this case. It looked as though somebody might be reprimanded, at least in court, and, but to have those charges stayed. Oh, look, it's extremely frustrating. Firstly, uh, the city's responsible for 90% of the policing costs. The good, you know, citizens of Anamo who pay their taxes directly and indirectly to the city are responsible for that. They're already paying for the police. Uh, in addition, now they've had to pay for the costs of hiring private counsel on behalf of the city to pursue the civil lawsuit uh, to take the necessary steps that it does to be successful. And in this case, to persuade uh, the young man that given the evidence, the preponderance of it, that it was best for him to uh, make or agree to a consent order that gives us some authority over him and represents further fines should he be caught doing it again. Uh, I understand he also had to agree to um, write a 1,000-word essay and a written apology. Yes, that's correct. Uh, that uh, That will be forthcoming, I hope, very soon. He is required to perform all of the terms of the fairly extensive and comprehensive order uh, that was agreed to as, as, as the settlement. And I sincerely hope that what has happened will send a signal to other young people. You know what? I don't mind you being stupid once or twice or three times, but you are not going to go around defacing private and public property across the city of Nanaimo without consequences. Was that kind of what was behind Nanaimo Council doing this or taking this this particular type of action? Because we don't see, or I'm not sure if we've seen another city uh, city council do this. It's pretty uncommon, and the reason is it's very costly. It's costly to paint over and do the kind of cleanup and repair that's necessary. It's also extremely costly to pursue a claim in a Supreme Court in British Columbia. Uh, and... For that reason, I suspect a lot of smaller municipalities are simply not in a position. They have to weigh the the damage being done versus the cost of successfully suing. But the good news is, if you do pursue a civil claim, you're entitled to all of the remedies provided for in the rules of court. And that includes examining someone under oath, being able to uh, secure admissions from them, which you can't uh, do in a criminal proceeding. Do you have any idea how much it cost? You mentioned it's costly. Uh, how much the price tag was for the city to, to take this action? Oh, uh, I, I can't give you a figure. And, and frankly, I think we might be breaching uh, some rules around solicitor client privilege. It doesn't really matter. What I can safely tell you is that between cleanup costs and the legal costs, let alone the staff time involved in this, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. This is not a minor undertaking. And that, as I say, probably explains why some municipalities haven't bothered. But I suggest that they do so where they can. There has to be a signal quote that, you know, we have responsibilities as citizens. I mean, we have, a, we have our streets full of people who are demonstrating for their rights because they believe in their causes uh, without particularly any consequences. And I'm starting to sound like a, a miserable, cranky old white guy on Thanksgiving Monday, I know. But having said that, Citizens are entitled to have people respect their private and their public property. And the council sent a real signal in this, and I sincerely hope that other young people will pay attention.
Uh, the order also includes, I thought this was interesting, the tagger in this particular case, not allowed to possess paint, not allowed to have spray paint or any kind of permanent markers for two years unless uh, they are needed for school, I would imagine, or for school or for work. Do, do you think that that will be able to be enforced? Uh, it can, it can certainly be enforced against him. Uh, some municipalities have considered, I think some may have across the country, brought in similar bylaws that uh, apply across the board. But the problem is, firstly, it's not always young people are doing this. So let's be fair to the youth of our society. It's not always young people are doing it. But secondly, enforcing bylaws is an expensive proposition. Uh, in our city, our bylaw officers have enough trouble now uh, trying to prevent breaches that arise from the continuing mental health, addictions, brain injury, and homelessness crisis that, that fills our streets as it does the streets of Vancouver and every other community of any size in the province. Municipal governments are stretched to the max. Uh, we have seen, I think, across this country, fair to say, fairly significant downloading from the provincial government uh, and the federal government to some extent indirectly. Uh, so, you know, there's only so much we can ask of people uh, and enforcing bylaws is a is uh, an issue. There's no question about it. I found it interesting as well because when I first saw that the fine that this person was ordered to pay a ten thousand dollar fine, I, I immediately thought, like I'm sure many did, well, what are the chances that somebody who is spending his time tagging the city of Nanaimo more than four hundred and fifty times has ten thousand dollars that he uh, can pay? But I thought it was quite. Was it so? Was this worked out as part of the deal that he's actually on a, a monthly payment plan? Yes, that is part of the order as well. Uh, it's interesting. I had one individual write to me, and I was a bit shocked, saying, you know, he agreed with everything, but making a poor young man pay $10,000 for a fine, uh, even if it was paid off monthly, was, uh, I think, he, he said it was um, abhorrent. Yes, he used the word abhorrent. Uh, and I responded uh, rather crankily that, you know, um, because this young man, I gather, unfortunately, sadly lost his father earlier this year, but I, I responded quite simply, my mother was left with four of us, 15 down to under five, and I was the youngest uh, to raise on our own. Frankly, all of us got jobs in high school. By the time we got to this young man's age, t- taking into account inflation, we could have paid the fine. So, you know, he's made some choices. He has to make better choices now. Do you hope this will deter others when they see the punishment and they see what the city of Nanaimo was willing to to do to get this, that it will deter others, not only in Nanaimo, but I suppose anywhere, to to not deface property like this? Absolutely. Look, there is no public benefit. It's not as if he did some wonderful mural on an unused or derelict building, as we have done with support and consent of some wonderful local artists uh, in various spots in town. This isn't public art with great respect, uh, and and to pretend it is is just ridiculous. Uh, we have a bylaw, indeed, that requires uh, private property owners to clean up this kind of, there's no other word for it, graffiti, if you will. And and so it's, it's a double punishment to property owners and a, a double penalty. They have to pay for it themselves, and they have to pay the property taxes to support the city in enforcing the bylaw. So, again, I... I I really, really hope that others will pay attention to this because uh, in Nanaimo, we're not going to tolerate this. And I can tell you that the RCMP, uh, trying to enforce the law in a situation like this, get extremely frustrated. I don't fault the Crown. I want to be clear here. 
I presume, and trust the Crown to have weighed the evidence and realized that it's hard to prove, because most of these kinds of offenses, if you will, occur in darkness. Uh, the clever people figure out where they can get away with it, and they do, and often do. And But in this case, by pursuing it civilly, regardless that the Crown dropped the charges, we've had some success. All right. Mayor Krogh, thanks so much for joining us today to talk more about this. I know a lot of people are interested in finding solutions. So thanks so much for your time. And happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Well, last week on the program, we were speaking with a a representative from Ecom 911 talking about what happens when people dial 911 and where your call gets directed. And we were talking to Ecom because there had been delays especially when people were calling for an ambulance and Ecom reminding people when you do that and get a recording, a lot of times people will hang up, they will call back. That is not what they're asking people to do. That actually jams the phone lines up a whole lot more. But the people who answer the calls at Ecom do stay on the line with people while they're waiting for them to transfer. So that can lead to delays as well. Well, it was another busy weekend and that led to what is being described as more consistent delays for people calling for an ambulance. Troy Clifford joins us now with the Ambulance Paramedics Union president, also an active paramedic. Troy, Thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Well, how were things this weekend as far as delays and people getting uh, emergency care? Yeah, so I've been hearing the same reports you guys have, and uh, I've talked to a few paramedics and obviously some dispatchers over the weekend. And, uh, you know, the, the, the delays uh, from, uh, sounds like most of the delays have been transferring um, from 911, the e-com to the ambulance dispatchers. And, and that's a, just a continuation of the, what we've seen with the just not enough call takers to answer the calls. Um, unfortunately, um, it's, as fast as we're trying to work with the organization and, and add those additional positions, it's just not enough because of our, our shortages that we, we, we've seen as a result of, uh, you know, what we've been, or we were sounding the alarm on before the summer, but uh, following the heat dome and, you know, the increased call volumes and, you know that uh, it's just uh, it seems nothing is is quick enough to get these uh, uh, calls answered in a timely fashion, and and it's really uh, frustrating for the paramedics and dispatchers. But it's it's uh, really uh, impacting our service, um, and so we're pushing as hard as we can to make sure that everything's being done uh, with the organization, and um, still need no more needs to be done because when we're hearing of this, that's not acceptable right is it the shortage then in people answering the phone when when you call 911 and ask to be transferred to ambulance or is it also a shortage of paramedics so it's, it's a little bit of both it's I, I don't believe i'm not aware of any staffing shortages at ecom but that would really be for them to answer there is our biggest shortages right now are on the street obviously with paramedics um and enough ambulances still to respond to all the calls in a timely fashion but what you're seeing with resist this is really a shortage of call takers in the ambulance dispatch centers to answer the 911 calls when you call for an ambulance. And, and that's really where the bottleneck is that we're talking about right now. Right. And I guess there was the confusion there was why would there, there only be that delay then when asking for an ambulance, not the same delay if you were calling 911 and asking for police or fire? Yeah, so that's uh, the, the delays is is with from what I gather and uh, what paramedics and, and dispatchers and our partner agencies are saying is its ability to transfer them and get off the line to answer another nine one one call um, is what's causing the the shortages in ecom. But uh, really, I, from everything I've gathered, is the concerns are about the ability to transfer the ambulance calls over the ambulance because there's nobody to answer them. 
um, or not enough dispatchers to answer. It's probably a better way to describe it. Right. What does that do for paramedics then? If there's a delay getting the call and, and the numbers, it's, it's, not, it's not extremely clear how long the delays were. But according to Ecom, the, the, an Ecom spokesperson said of this past weekend, or I guess the weekend we're still technically in for people who have today yeah. off. Uh, on average, people were waiting about a minute and a half to get an operator, though some people waited quite a bit longer, but it wasn't really defined what quite a bit longer was. What does that mean then for paramedics when there's already been that delay before even getting to the point where they're being dispatched? Well, there's a number of effects. It's obviously on the, uh, you know, when somebody's in an emergency situation and they have any delay or ha- put on hold, you can't imagine what that would uh, especially in a critical situation where you're calling for help. So I think that's really what everybody's trying to fix. And I heard the, uh, the Premier talk about that last week, and I reached out to the Minister late last week just to talk about how we can do better. But really, it's the impacts on the dispatcher, their well-being, um, the paramedics that are delayed. But more importantly, it's on the patient. Any delay to uh, somebody in their time emergency can have detrimental effects on their outcomes, and, and we can't have that. And I think that's really what everybody's acknowledging But we got to keep the pressure on and get this changed because it's not sustainable and it's not good for our patients. And I think one of the issues too, and whenever they can, uh, Ecom does remind people that if you get that recording, don't hang up and dial again because that jams up the phone lines even more. But if you're in a situation where you're calling for emergency health, you don't expect to get a recording and it might just be the reflex for people to think, well, this isn't right and hang up and call again. Yeah, absolutely. They're doing a very good job of trying to educate and do some public service announcements on that because they are right. Uh, Anything that adds a delay or a hang up or that um, requires additional resources to confirm it's an emergency or what they need a resource. So that adds uh, extra pressure on all the dispatchers in the system, which uh, so I think they're doing a very good job of uh, just educating and and trying to make everybody aware of the challenges. Um, I I think that's uh, that's a good thing, but that still doesn't deal with the real underlying issue which is really what we've got to do i think uh what i've been reaching out to working with the senior newly senior leadership is a, how many dispatchers do we need to to ensure that every 911 is answered in a, immediately without any delay and, and they're putting in uh, additional training spots the 30 that they put in initially that the minister announced are all in place right now but our biggest problem is really our uh, some some of our challenges with um, the fatigue and the mental health injuries, which is causing, it was exasperating essentially the injuries that more people are off. So we've got to really, uh, really change the structure. And I think that's one of the things that uh, came out of the minister's announcement in July, where we've been working very hard and we've actually got a, a joint briefing paper on mental health and wellness that's before the ministry right now for um, approvals and advisements. Um, and I'm really excited if that can come. That'll go a long way to changing the the uh, wellness and the impacts of the uh, the fatigue and the injury, mental health injuries. So there are some really positive things, but nothing is quick enough to make sure that we get enough ambulances to patients and get every 911 answered in a timely fashion. Uh, and that really causes pressure on all of us. And because um, we—that's not what we're about, right? right. I mean, it—it it really is tough to see when you hear of this sort of stuff. You—you uh, you mentioned a couple of things there. So, one, the thirty new dispatch positions. When when those were announced, it was the minister, I believe, saying that they were going to be filled, expected to be filled by December. So, d- did you just say those have all been filled? Yeah, they're in their training right now, so they're okay. in the. So they, uh, I believe it was early August where they were actually selected to consider their posting and administrative processes, and they were selected in early August, as I recall. 
Um, and then they've been going through their training, and now they're in. Uh, most of them are either finished or in their precepting, which is their uh, orientation or you know, hands-on training in the center with a with a mentor and a preceptor, a trainer, if you wish. Okay, but you also talked about fatigue, mental health, people that are off because of that. Are, are you talking about dispatchers or call answerers or also paramedics? Both. Uh, we're seeing the same numbers. We've, you know, following the heat dome, we've seen a lot of our our emergency call takers and dispatchers. Our our, our psychological injuries in our dispatch centers for our call takers and, and dispatchers is, is significantly high. Um, with the fatigue and pressure that they've been under, it's a it's a tough job. Um, uh, I did it a long time ago, and I can't imagine the, the pressures that they're under now. But also, we're seeing the same amount of uh, illnesses and injuries and book-offs on the street, which is already on top of what we're seeing with our lack of staff. It just makes the situation even worse. And, and that's where I think the support needs to be there, and we really need to get the system propped up so that we can support the um, the, the long-term goals of getting properly staffed and timely ambulance uh, responses, et cetera, right? Right. When you say it's a tough job, though, is it uh, tougher now because of all of these other pressures and that I think it would be a tough job in when every job is, when every position is filled and and it's it would still be a very tough job because you're obviously dealing with people who are in very, very perilous situations. But is it because of staffing shortages and a pandemic and an opioid crisis? Is it all of these other things as well that are, are making it tougher? Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we, we know that we have a tough job and people accept that, not just unique to our profession. But uh, the challenges that we've seen, you know, when, when you go through periods of time, I talk to dispatchers or, or paramedics, when you've seen the delays that you do and you're at, when you're sitting in a dispatch center uh, and you know that there's 911s on hold and you're, you don't want to rush the person you're looking after right now, but you know that somebody is waiting, that's incredible psychological impact. And, and that is having its toll on, on the dispatch. And then when they're not having enough resources to send to calls um, and they're not able to tell people um, when they're going to reasonably get an ambulance, that adds incredible pressure on, on our call taker and dispatchers. Um, and, and in the same sense where paramedics can't uh, get to calls and, you know, they're going back-to-back calls and they know that there's serious calls waiting or people have been waiting for a long time and they get there. And so these are all system problems, not necessarily going to a bad call, right? This is right. Uh, stuff that's out of their control that is really affecting their ability to do their job and treat our patients. And so are you confident these these are going to be dealt with or that we will see any change? It seems like we really started, we've talked about this before, but it seems like we yeah. really started talking about this after the heat dome. So what what will lead to some change? Well, I think that's really, I, I, I mean, we were talking about it for a long time before, and it didn't happen overnight. But the heat dome, I really describe as sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and really exposed the vulnerability and questioned the ambulance service's ability to respond and all those sort of things. And I think that's where it came from the minister's announcement. Well, I know that's where, uh, when he put a significant uh, on behalf of the ministry and the government of uh, funding into it. But really, I think what's happened is realize there's a lot more work to do. Um, and I, 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 I am optimistic in the sense that we've been working very closely with the new governance model, with Jim Chu as the board chair and Leanne Heppel, the new leader uh, of the ambulance, chief ambulance officer. And Neil Lilly has stepped up as, a, um, as to oversee the ambulance service. And they've been working very closely with us on solutions and that. So the collaboration is really good. And I'm optimistic about that longer term the government model and the support of the government. But um, 
right now we're not seeing a lot of change and there seems to be a little bit of a lull and we're still seeing these same numbers of delays and that that we we saw in the summer and that's really worrisome um uh, i did reach out to the minister late last week and i'm hoping to have a conversation with him this this week to see where where we can do better to help them um from a union perspective from a professional's perspective because it's it's really about all of us right it is, absolutely. Troy, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for this update, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon, but thanks again today for your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, an event was held yesterday in Surrey called One Cure Live, and they also had a news conference talking about what this event was all about. It was started when in May of 2021, the Tekel Willis Foundation was registered. And if that name sounds familiar, it is because Tekel Willis was a 14-year-old from Burnaby. He was shot and killed in Surrey in December of 2020. And it really started the conversation conversations about age and about when people are most vulnerable of being lured into gang life. So this was an event to talk about that and to raise awareness about the dangers of gang life and talk about how to keep people out of that lifestyle. Well, Cal Dosange is with the group Kids Play Foundation, and he is joining me now to talk more about this. Cal, thank you so much for being with us and uh, for joining the program today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Wanted to talk to you a bit more about something that happened yesterday. I know that because of uh, your line of work, you weren't able to be front and center, but this was an event that has to do with the Tekel Willis Foundation. Uh, Before we get to the event, can you talk a little bit about Tekel Willis and what Tekel's death has done as far as raising awareness and getting people talking about gangs and gang activity? I think it was uh, tremendously traumatizing for the entire community and a very impactful social statement that this is the trajectory and the direction that we're headed as a society as a whole, that these kids are getting younger and younger. And for somebody of that age to be gunned down in the community, uh, I think it was sobering. Uh, Definitely a moment of epiphany and revelation for the entire community as a whole to wake up and realize that we need to do something about this. And was it the, the age, you mentioned the age of Tekel Willis being just 14 years old uh, when, when he was shot and killed. This happened back in December of 2020. Um, how, what do we know about the activity? I know that his, his family has come out and talked about how he had gotten kind of uh, connected to the wrong crowd. Is that typical, though, for that age or is that when uh, people are most vulnerable? They are most vulnerable, Jill, and in addition to that, it is not typical. Uh, However, uh, the way the trend is going and the way uh, things are happening these days, unfortunately, a lot more kids of that age are gravitating uh, towards that lifestyle, primarily on account uh, for the fact that um, there's so much exposure to social media. Uh, They're looking for the uh, lucrative drug trade and the easy money that comes with it. Uh, some of the more sociological factors include acceptance and identity. Uh, some of the economical factors include their, their socioeconomic status. And so uh, there's always that uh, the gangster lifestyle, which uh, includes uh, intimidation and, and um, everything else and the glory that comes with that lifestyle. So it's a very romanticized version of living that. And a lot of these kids that are more susceptible and vulnerable on account of the fact that they might come from more dysfunctional family backgrounds, uh, are easily galvanized uh, to enter that lifestyle. 
Uh, when we talk about age as well, I know we've talked about it on this program before when people who are well-known members of, of gang activity who lose their lives can being connected with gang activity. Um, oftentimes when we talk about somebody being gunned down in his 30s, the comment will be made that that's actually quite old for somebody that's been wrapped up in that lifestyle. Is, is it frustrating for you that the message doesn't get out when, when the message of this lucrative lifestyle and acceptance and what have you, that part gets out, but, but the rest of it, the really bad part and the very dangerous part doesn't seem to? Yeah, but that's, that's the whole objective and purpose of essentially what we're trying to do uh, as a community as a whole. Whether you take a look at law enforcement agencies with respect to their current strategies and tactics that they're utilizing with respect to uh, connect with the community, or whether you look at uh, uh, traditional schooling institutions and districts and what type of tactics they're trying to uh, deploy uh, in terms of connecting with the community, or you take a look at nonprofits. The important thing here is we can't be compartmentalized in our respective silos. We all need to work together. And the, the underlying theme always needs to be the same, is that if you go into this lifestyle, there is significant and severe and serious consequences and repercussions uh, that are a part of that uh, lifestyle. And so the, the greatest tactic that is at our disposal at this moment is educational awareness. And that's exactly what Kids Play Foundation, the organization we run, and many others are doing exactly the same, is that we're reaching out into the community and we're trying to insulate these kids with the knowledge, uh, with the guidance and good mentoring that there are other ways of being a good productive citizen of society and making money if that is your end goal. And you don't necessarily need to enter this lifestyle. And so you know, providing these kids with the amenities, resources, and support uh, network that they need to keep out of the lifestyle in the first place, I think that's absolutely imperative and crucial here. Uh, the family uh, of Tekel Willis has put together this foundation, registered this foundation. Again, there was a, a big event yesterday. How important is it, do you think, for, for people to see this? Uh, not only a, a family trying to make the best of an incredible loss, but really trying to work and get that message out, the, a very similar message to what uh, what uh, the Kids Play Foundation does about uh, about reaching these kids before it's too late. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I'll be honest with you, Joe. Sometimes it feels like the virtual equivalent of shoveling water because for every one kid that you save, there's 10 others that are lined up to enter that lifestyle. These kinds of events are extremely important because we don't want society to become lackadaisical and complacent. At the time uh, Tekel's death happened, uh, it was um, shocking. Uh, it woke up the entire community. Uh, how could this happen? But then that, that shock dissipates. Uh, then that feeling of empathy dissipates. I think then we have a tendency uh, and propensity to go back into our old habits. And that's what we need to stop, is that we cannot get lackadaisical about this. We cannot get complacent. We cannot forget. This needs to be a constant push and consistent, sustained effort that we need to remind the community every single day that this is uh, always a possibility and that we simply can't forget about it because four or five months might go in between We'll simply go back to our uh, regular lives and another high profile uh, gang slaying will happen in midday on the streets, which is it is happening. And so public safety is first and paramount. uh, But on top of that, we need to teach these youth that are 12, 13, 14 years old that are being groomed to enter this lifestyle by drug dealers that these gangsters and drug dealers are not your friends. They don't care. You are simply a disposable pawn on on their chessboard and you are there to make the money and if something happens to you tomorrow there's 10 other kids that are lined up to take your place so it is not worth it
Uh, that's got to be for, for you as well, being a, with Kids Play Foundation, as well as being a, a police officer and seeing this on the streets. Uh, I mean, I, I can hear the frustration in your voice uh, seeing this. But so how do we uh, rather than I mean, having these conversations and having organizations that try and get this message out? What else can be done to try and, like you said, keep there from being 10 other kids ready there lined up and waiting and, and open to doing this? I think it's exactly what you're doing right now, Joe. I think the media plays a very crucial role in this in terms of disseminating that information to the general public that here's programs that are available to you. Uh, here's what's happening in the community. I think all of us need to work together in this concerted effort to get that message out. And once again, at the end of the day, it's going to be about educational awareness. It's going to be about connecting the community together, make sure that we all work together in solidarity and we all share that same vision that we need to keep our kids out of the lifestyle. And the only way we can accomplish that is by providing them good mentoring and support networks so that we can help these families out that might be experiencing something like this. But time and time again, through the Kids Play Foundation, we'll have parents approaching us saying that, you know what, our kids weren't involved at that time when you were running some of these programs, and we were simply uh, oblivious about it. Uh, we didn't think it was necessary uh, to bring our kids to such programs. And now that our children are involved, uh, we don't know what to do. And so that's exactly it. You don't want to wait until that situation is out of your control and now it's a it's not something that you're capable of handling and now you're getting people to intervene and interject what we need to be is preemptive we need to be proactive we need to be engaged with our kids from day one so that we are providing them that strong foundation so they don't head in that direction in the first place all right it is good advice cal dosange we'll leave it there for today but thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, today is, as you know, Canadian Thanksgiving, but it is also International Day of the Girl. A lot of people have been posting on social media, talking about the importance of recognizing this every day, not just today. We thought it would be a good idea to bring in Diamond Isinger, Provincial Commissioner with the British Columbia Girl Guides of Canada. Diamond, so great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me today, and happy Thanksgiving and Day of the Girl. <laughs> yeah, they just happen to fall uh, on the same day. Uh, talk a bit, if you can. I know the Girl Guides is one of the largest, if not the lar- largest organization, specifically for girls and women in BC and Canada. What role does it play, or kind of from your point of view, why is it important? Well, Girl Guides is more than ever a source of empowerment and support for a lot of BC girls. It's been a really difficult 18-plus uh, months now uh, during the COVID pandemic where a lot of girls have felt disconnected or felt lonely in some cases, have struggled with their mental health and otherwise. And so it's more important than ever that girls have those supportive networks, the, the supportive peers in their lives, the role models that they have access to, and all of the other things that make their leadership potential uh, grow and shine. Uh, I've talked to you in the past about things that members of the guides have done. The one that comes to mind always is when one of the guides realized that scouts or maybe the the equivalent of, of boys' organizations, they were getting more credit for doing things that were the same as what girl guides were doing. How important is it that we do have people who have eyes on those types of discrepancies and help fix them? 
Yeah, good memory. I remember speaking about that. That was back in 2019. We had a teenager from Vancouver Island who discovered that in some of our Girl Guide awards that the Ministry of Education awards credits for for high school graduation, that traditionally male organizations uh, were receiving higher levels of credit than girls through Girl Guides were for comparable levels of achievement. And so she advocated and we advocated with her to the ministry and they created that change. But that's what Girl Guides is all about. It's about giving girls the tools, the confidence, the empowerment to be able to identify the change they want to see in the world and then make it happen. Uh, And you mentioned how it has been difficult during this pandemic and certainly difficult for all types of groups and people, but some more than others. How has it impacted people and young girls that would depend on Girl Guides? Girl Guides has thankfully been available continuously for girls throughout the COVID pandemic. It's looked different at different points in time. We, at different points in time, did a lot more virtual opportunities, a lot more online connections, Zoom games nights, you know, science demonstrations over Microsoft Teams, all those fun things that we could do online. But as we return to in-person opportunities, most of our groups across British Columbia are meeting in person. Thankfully, parents uh, know that our organization prioritizes safety, that we're really committed to running safe and empowering and fun activities for girls. And we're seeing our membership rise right now as well. There's really high demand for Girl Guides in BC, I think in large part because families want their girls to regain that connection, that sense of normalcy, that sense of support. It's really important for a lot of girls and their families. And what about fundraising? I know it too looked very different, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. It did, yes. We're in the midst of our fall 2021 cookie campaign right now. Our girls all across BC have our chocolate and vanilla cookies on hand, and they are selling them. My own group were sold out. There's been uh, a lot of enthusiastic support across British Columbia. But yes, in the last 18 months, we've had to sell cookies in different ways. We've had to um, really do everything that we do as an organization a little bit differently. Um, But our Be Prepared spirit as Girl Guides has really carried us through uh, the experience well. Our members have been very adaptable and flexible and prepared to adapt to any circumstance that has come our way. And that's that's meant that we are still strong. We're still available. We are able to deliver programs for girls now. And I think that that's a really exciting opportunity as we look to the year ahead and all the opportunities ahead of us. Uh, So how do people get involved? At what age can you get involved with Girl Guides? Girl Guides offers programs for girls ages five plus. So starting in kindergarten, we have programs in almost every community across British Columbia, certainly every area and region of the, of the province. We offer very accessible programs. The fee is very inexpensive. We also offer financial support through uh, confidential subsidies for any family that may be experiencing financial need, especially during the COVID pandemic when lots of people's employment or financial circumstances have been impacted. And of course, by selling cookies, we also get to help uh, fundraise towards that as well. So by buying a box of cookies, even if you're not signing up your child and girl guides, you're able to provide financial support so that other girls in your community can be part of guiding. And, and have you noticed things change at all when we, we are more kind of aware now of people and different ways that people identify. And there seems to be kind of a pulling back from organizations that that kind of divide people based on sex or divide people based on gender. Has that come into part of the conversation with Girl Guides? 
we're focused on being an inclusive organization. We think that there's a lot of value to having a space for those who identify as girls. We welcome anyone who identifies as female to be part of our organization, anyone who feels that a space like Girl Guides is appropriate for them and for their families. And so we're very, um, very welcoming in that sense. Uh, we've participated in lots of pride events over the years and parades and opportunities. We have reached out to other community organizations. We want to make sure that any girl from any walk of life can be part of guiding and that she and her family feel welcome. And what about guide leaders? Are you looking for new leaders to join the operation? Or how has that kind of fared, during, especially during the, the pandemic? We are constantly looking for new volunteers. An International Day of the Girl is a great opportunity to renew that request. Right now, we have actually wait lists for a lot of girls in a lot of regions of BC, um, depending on the age group, the night of the week, the neighborhood that they're in. We are in serious need of new adult women who are willing to step up, who can give a little bit of their time and a lot of their enthusiasm to girls in their neighborhoods. I think that volunteering with guiding, as I do, in addition to being provincial commissioner, I have a group of my own in East Vancouver. It's a fun opportunity for me. It's something that keeps me connected to my community. It helps teach me and so many other volunteers I know really valuable life skills that are transferable to our careers, transferable to our families. I think that it's a fantastic opportunity for just about any woman that would like to get involved. So we'd love to have anyone visit our website at girlguides.ca, whether to register their own child or to apply as an adult volunteer, so they can join our sisterhood and we can make sure that we can welcome any and every girl that would like to join and that we have space for her. I I certainly do hear from people who now as adults talk about their time guiding and getting into it with extremely fond memories of doing that. For, For girls in a lot of scenarios, is it really, is it uh, as an opportunity for socializing or perhaps an opportunity to get into the community and meet people and, and network that they wouldn't otherwise have? I think it's, it's everything that you've just said. I believe that, uh, that being involved in guiding gives a lot of girls access to opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise explore, whether that's because of their families financial circumstances, or even just topics that they and their parents are familiar with and exposed to, whether that be camping opportunities, traveling abroad, other special opportunities that we are able to organize, a lot of the girls that participate in those opportunities wouldn't be able to otherwise do that outside of guiding. That was certainly the case for me as a child going through the Girl Guide program, being able to travel to other provinces and even other countries. It's a really special opportunity to do that, to fundraise, to work as part of a team to achieve big goals like that. And that's what we want to empower girls to do, whether on International Day of the Girl today or all year round. All right. Well, Diamond, great to have you on the program today to talk more about this. We'll leave it there, but thank you so much. Thank you. Happy International Day of the Girl.